The August issue of Scientific American is available. One of the uh, one of the big articles is related to uh, the China coverage, and that's the uh, the health impact of all the smoke on on kids, and it's uh, it's a growing problem. Yes, uh, that we're very interested in running this article. Um, obviously, China's got a lot of pollution problems at the moment. Air pollution is one that's uh, going to be very obvious, even to people who are just uh, watching the, the Olympics coverage. They're most likely going to see that uh, a lot of the air in parts of China is, is pretty filthy. And uh, some of that's related to pollutants that are released in, uh, for example, the uh, coal-burning power plants. Um, the Article we have, uh, China's Children of Smoke in the August issue, talks about some work in the rather new field of molecular epidemiology, trying to link some of the, uh, the, the pollutants that are found in the air to, um, to certain chemicals that are attaching themselves apparently to the DNA of, uh, children in this area, and that may be responsible for some of the children, uh, having, uh, some, some forms of, of lessened, uh, intellectual performance. We also have, uh, in, in, in another health story, we have big migraine piece. This is a fascinating field, migraine study. Right. It really is. I mean, obviously, anybody who's ever had a migraine or even just seen other people who suffer from migraines know how excruciating they are and know that they're not just a bad headache. Um, a funny thing is that for uh, hundreds of years, um, medical science basically was in the situation of, of, in some respects, treating migraines as though they were just really bad headaches. That is, uh, it was believed that it was a kind of circulatory problem, that something happened that for some reason, uh, first uh, people's, uh, the, the blood flow into people's brains would be reduced for a while, and then there would be a big surge in blood flow. And it was thought that the pain of migraines was actually the, the pain in the blood vessels of all of those uh, vessels dilating and stretching. Turns out that that is almost completely wrong. And the actual circumstances of blood flow in, uh, in the, the brains of people who have migraines go exactly the other way. Weren't migraine sufferers being treated with vasoconstricting drugs? Right. I mean, that's So that just made things worse? Unfortunately, it certainly wasn't helping matters at all. Um, and, and this really was the, the way that migraines were understood to work uh, up certainly into the 1980s. Um, the newer understanding, though, is that migraines are at root more of a genuine neurological problem. It's something that, that actually does arise inside your brain, among the, the neurons of your brain. Mm. And, uh, and then that becomes a phenomenon that elicits pain. The phenomenon in question is, is called cortical spreading depression. And uh, basically, it begins as on the surface of the brain as this expanding wave of uh, hyperactivity among the neurons moves fairly slowly by a lot of uh, standards of things happening in the brain. But um, you just have this widening field of neurons that are firing very, very fast. Uh, and then after that happens in the in the wake of sort of that that almost literal brainstorm, those neurons are in a kind of depressed state. It makes it very, very hard for them to fire. They're, they're inhibited. And that inhibited state seems to be what's associated with the, the pain of a migraine in the same way that the expanding wave 
of uh, overactivity is associated with the auras that people have mm -hmm. before migraines. I get those. Well, I haven't gotten them often, but I have gotten, I think, four times in my life the auras, the ocular migraine, fortunately not followed by the, the very painful episode, although my, my entire head was a little sensitive for the next couple of days after that. But I have gotten these auras, and they're, it's fascinating. The first time it happened, I didn't really know what was going on. I thought I was seeing the reflection of a ceiling fan on a Formica tabletop. Hmm. And then I looked up, and the fan was not on. And I was the whole bottom half of my field of vision was sort of shimmering, is the way I, I think of it. And I, I was rendered basically, I don't want to say blind, because I could still see things, but you know, I couldn't have driven a car under those circumstances. Right. I think a lot of people don't necessarily, uh, if, if we're lucky enough not to have migraines, uh, don't necessarily fully appreciate how much it is a it is a, a phenomenon that occurs over quite a piece of time. There's a there's an interval that can last sometimes a couple of days before the onset of of uh, migraine, in which you may just feel sort of a little lethargic and a little sensitive to light, and then this period of the aura, which generally means that the onset of pain it's is about an hour away. Yeah. Um, the migraine, the painful part of it, can last someplace between like four hours and three days, and after that, you can still have this period of of uh, sensitivity to light and fatigue that in some cases it, it can take days or even weeks for people to shake off. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it, this is why it is that migraines, which apparently strike about 300 million people in the world, um, why it is that that migraine is now seen as a much bigger cause of of chronic problems uh, than was often appreciated. Uh, there was a, a statistic from the World Health Organization that uh, suggested that that migraine is uh, one of the four most disabling chronic medical disorders, and uh, it, the hit to the U.S. economy may be like seventeen billion dollars from migraines once you start to factor in uh, the time lost for work and disability payments and other kinds of health care expenses. Wow. Well, uh, you can also look up any, any migraine fans, and I'm sure there's no fans out there, but anybody with a particular interest in migraines, especially the, uh, the auras, just look up St. Hilda of Bingen. There's some interesting stuff about her and her migraine experiences. Um, from, from brainstorms, as you said, literally brainstorms, to solar... Superstorms. Solar superstorms. <laughs> Apparently, I didn't know about this 1859 solar superstorm. And if we get a repeat of that, why it's going to be fun and games down here on our little blue marble. Right, right. Well put, Steve. Um, astronomers who strangely don't often call these things solar superstorms in the literature um, would sometimes talk about these as uh, what's called a coronal mass ejection. Um, when uh, a coronal mass ejection is different from like a, a solar flare, um, which you have a, a certain amount of, of the sun's material sort of expelled far out into space. With a coronal mass ejection, you're talking about a very sizable amount of, of uh, solar material that is ejected. And when it is, uh, you get this huge disruption of magnetic field that comes along with it. If this uh, mass uh, that's being ejected from the sun is, is moving in the direction of the Earth, it's carrying along a lot of uh, these charged particles, and it has a huge effect on the Earth's own magnetic field. Basically blows our magnetic 
magnetic field out for a while. Right. Yeah. And the magnetic field, of course, is very important for protecting us in all sorts of ways. Of course, you know, at, at one time, this sort of thing could happen and we would be oblivious to it here on the surface of the Earth because we're not directly experiencing uh, magnetic fields. But uh, these days, um, we're very, very dependent on the magnetic field of the Earth. We constantly depend on it for all kinds of, of electronic communications, not to mention that we have many different types of uh, electronic devices that are very sensitive to strong magnetic fields. So a concern that uh, this article flags is that if we were to have a, a replay of the kind of, of big solar storm that we had uh, back in, uh, in 1859, that it could really fry a lot of electronic equipment and could uh, blow out a lot of satellites. Uh, in fact, uh, to understand just the, the impact of this, um, it's conceivable that it could blow out the power grid uh, across the United States and across a lot of the rest of the world. And that would be bad. That would be very unfortunate. Now, let me ask you, how did, what was the evidence for the 1859 solar superstorm since there weren't these, I guess you had uh, telegraph lines at that point that might have been disrupted? That's right. And in fact, uh, telegraph operators were reporting at the time that they were getting an unusually large amount of interference that was showing up on their lines and interfering with their own sorts of communications. But in fact, there were some other kinds of uh, obvious uh, indications of this at, at night, the uh, the Aurora Borealis, the northern lights, not quite just as northern as usual. Uh, there were reports that they could be seen down as far south as, as Cuba, I think. And, uh, and then, of course, also uh, astronomers at the time who were watching the sun were noticing that there was a, quite a bit of activity going on there. So in retrospect, it's, it was relatively easy to piece together that we had a, a massive solar event. So uh, from the sun back down to the earth, we have, uh, we have another article on self-cleaning materials. Now, this is not your old self-cleaning oven, This is which doesn't work anyway. But this, this is, uh, we're copying nature here and we get materials that, that basically uh, take care of their own grime. Yes, yes, that's right, which is refreshing because imagine how long it would take to clean nature otherwise. There's um, a lot of dirt out there yes, in nature. Yes, yes. Nature, the earth is a large portion of it is dirt, as I understand. Um, I don't know. I don't go outside, but this is what I've heard. Um, anyway, yes, this, this article is talking about some uh, engineering accomplishments in the area of biomimicry, which is uh, the effort to look at nature and see how various natural materials have uh, uh, desirable properties and then starting to try to transfer those over into man-made materials. Um, the starting point for this article is uh, the lotus leaf. Um, I don't know if you've ever looked closely at a lotus plant. It's a, it's a pretty little plant. Even in a fairly dusty environment, uh, lotus leaves will stay clean. Um, the dust literally just rolls right back off of them. They have to get wet, right? They have to get wet. Yeah. That's right. Any sort of moisture that accumulates in the air starts to uh, uh, condense onto the lotus leaves, and then it roll the, the, those tiny little droplets will roll down the surface of the lotus leaf, picking up any sorts of dirt uh, as it goes and, and cleans the plant off. Uh, 
it, now engineers have been able to do this same sort of thing, recreate that same kind of extremely fine scale texture uh, onto other materials. And uh, the, as a result of this, you now can have uh, take advantage of that same self-cleaning effect, and it could potentially be used for things like some sorts of fabrics or other materials. Um, and, and glass, its application to, for example, a windshield is really wonderful, because that means that in a windshield, you have a windshield that will never get foggy. And of course, it will also clean itself. Oh, interesting. Yes. Anytime the, the moisture accumulates on it, it immediately it runs right, right back off. off. Interesting. So who knows? Might, might have windshields without windshield wipers. And you'll, uh, you'll have dishes that you don't need soap. You just rinse them off. Rinse them off, and any kinds of food particles would dislodge and come right off with the stream of water. Of course, that wouldn't change the, uh, the cleaning habits at my house. But I'd also like to uh, just take a moment, and uh, I'm, I'm very proud of my contribution to this, this month's issue. Uh, the first ever horoscope published in Scientific American. I'm looking for it right now. Bloody D. That would be page 43. Ah, page 43. Yeah, some some listeners might not know, but I uh, quote, contribute, end quote, a, uh, a column to the magazine every month, and I decided to, uh, to write a, a horoscope this month. Um, I'll give you an example. This, this is the, the type of horoscope that you would see only in Scientific American. And, uh, for example, Sagittarius's entry, you will go on a long journey when you become a highly trained astronaut and travel to the International Space Station to fix the toilet. More of those kinds of gems <laughs> are available in the uh, column Looking for a Sign, the anti-gravity column in the August issue of Scientific American. John, thanks again for your time, and uh, are we going to have a September issue this year? According to this horoscope uh, that I'm looking at here, yes, yes, there is at least one more issue in my future. And the, uh, the, in fact, the September issue this year is our annual September single topic issue, and uh, this year the, it is on the future of privacy, a look at uh, how it is that uh, the state of Technology is changing uh, the state of privacy and uh, data security uh, for us all around the world. 